to Tycoons of Small Biz, a podcast where small business owners are celebrated as the backbone of the American economy. Each week, we introduce you to tycoons who share their stories and advice so that small business owners may learn from their experiences. Tycoons is powered by Backbone Planning Partners. Join us now as our hosts connect you to today's tycoons. Good afternoon, tycoons, and welcome to today's episode of Tycoons of Small Biz. I'm your host here, as always, Austin Peterson, coming to you live from the very, very hot uh, Phoenix, Arizona area today. And we're excited, obviously, as we do this uh, every other week now to bring in a new guest and talk to them about what they do in the business community, what's impacted them, what's going on in their world, et cetera, et cetera. And, and in hopes of, of that helping all of the small business owner community throughout the throughout the country that are truly the backbone of the American economy. So with that being said, we definitely have a tycoon of small biz on the, on the podcast with us today. We've got Chad Callen coming to us from Houston, Texas. Chad is the chief executive officer or CEO of Vecta Environmental Services, LLC. They're based outside of Baton Rouge, Louisiana and Gonzales, Louisiana, but Chad is based in Houston. So Chad, welcome in. Thank you, Austin. I appreciate it. Good to see you. Yeah, yeah, good to see you. And we talked a little bit before, just you know, for the <laughs> for those listening, I, I think Houston is probably one of the very few places in this country that have summers worse than we do in Phoenix. <laughs> yeah, it's been pretty brutal this year. We last last week we got about a quarter inch of rain or something, and it was first rain we've had all summer. So doing a rain dance ever since, but it's not working. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's been a brutal summer here in Phoenix, too. I mean, I think today it's going to get up to 115, 114, it looks like. Yeah, we've had 20 days over 110 this year. It's It's been a brutal, brutal summer. Yeah, I think it's that way everywhere. All right, Chad. Well, let's, uh, before we jump into kind of the business side and what you guys are doing at Vecta Environmental, why don't you give us just a little bit of background on you? Where'd you, where'd you grow up? What was life like growing up? Are you married? Do you have any kids? Yeah. Yep. Good deal. Yeah, I was uh, born in Minnesota, but never really lived there. Kind of son of a of a Navy guy. So got moved to Norfolk, Virginia, then grew up there until my early teens. Had a great time in Norfolk, man, right in the streets and moved to Mississippi when I was a sophomore in high school. Dad got transferred down to Stennis Space Center on in, in Mississippi. So moved down there, uh, finished college at University of Southern Mississippi. And then moved to New Orleans right after graduation and kind of spent about 20 years in New Orleans and New Orleans was home, loved the city, still have a lot of friends and family there. But in 2010, took a job in Houston, Houston, Texas, and didn't really know a whole lot about Houston except where some of the jobs I had done here. And my, ver- my vision of Houston was a ship channel, right? And that's really all I knew because I was in the environmental business and that's where I spent most of my time. But Found a, a great community just a little north of Houston called Kingwood. My wife and I moved over and then shortly thereafter had our daughter. She's going to turn 12 here in a in a couple of days and have really loved it. Houston's become home, a much better move than I ever expected. And, you know, great people, great town, a lot to do, great business environment. A lot of people from a lot of different parts of the world move here. So it's a good, diverse community. And have really enjoyed it, and and we've all kind of settled in and made ourselves part of the community. Yeah, that's great. So yeah, you've lived kind of all over the the country. Yeah. And, you know, 
you talk about environmental. So let, let me just kind of lay the, the groundwork for those listening, because that can mean a lot of different yeah. things, right? Yeah. I'm going to read the company description you guys gave us, environmental. So Vecta Environmental is a provider of high-quality industrial cleaning solutions, strategically located in the Gulf Coast region and southeastern United States. They distinguish themselves by delivering the highest level of employee safety and customer service in our industry, specializing in hydroblasting, chemical cleaning, hydro excavation, and turnaround services. Vecta Environmental provides preventative maintenance for the global supply chain. Yep. So yep. Lots there. So kind of just yeah. give us the, the background. What exactly does Vecta do and, and how did you get involved with Vecta? Because for our listeners, you're actually one of the the few guests that we've had on that isn't a founder of the company, if I remember correctly, from our Correct. pre-qual. Yep. You're the CEO. So yep. fill us in. So my background is more on the environmental side. My my you know, my my early background was cleaning up oil spills. My first job in the industry was was as a field chemist cleaning up Superfund sites. So I would go out and kind of figure out what was on site and how to get it cleaned up and then how to safely get rid of it, right? Kenny Rouse, who's the founder of Vecta, he and I worked together at a previous company. Kenny's based in Baton Rouge. His background is industrial cleaning. He likes to say, you know, when when his friends went off to college, he went to the shipyard and went to work. His dad ran a shipyard, his grandfather ran a shipyard, and, and you know, that's kind of where Kenny came up. So he's been doing industrial cleaning, tank cleaning his, you know, his entire career. I left the company that we were working together at in 2009 and Kenny was approached by a customer of ours at the time, you know, by a customer of that company and, and really encouraged him to do his own thing. Right. Really liked the work Kenny was doing, had some issues with the company, but valued Kenny's dedication, his hard work and his safety and kind of encouraged Kenny to go out and do his own thing. So Kenny kind of took a leap of faith, started the business really just by himself, working kind of nights and weekends when he could to help this customer out and just kind of took off from there. You know, he and I stayed in touch. I was in Houston at the time and he invited me to join him in 2011 to start Vecta. I just moved to Houston. Like I said, my wife was pregnant at the time. I had insurance and a nice, comfortable job and it just the timing wasn't great. But, you know, but we stayed in touch and he stayed in, in Louisiana growing it, you know, just one customer at a time, adding one employee at a time. And then in 2013, I had kind of built a network here. We had some customers in Louisiana who had sites in Houston. So they wanted us to, to help support. So in 2013, I joined Kenny as the CEO. Uh, and then we've kind of grown it from there. Selena, Selena Ray, who's our CFO, she joined around the same time. She had been working with Kenny. She helped set up the LLC from the very beginning, but she came on full-time around the same time I did. And then from there, we just started growing it kind of as, as the leadership team together. Okay. So you've been there 10 years now, which yep. is a long tenure for a CEO, quite honestly, yep. anyhow. So give us the background on where you guys were in 2013 in terms of yeah. headcount, revenue, whatever makes you know sense yep. to you guys, and then where you are today. So when I came when I came on as CEO, it was in it was in title only, man. We had, you know, we we had about eight employees. We were doing about 1.2 million in revenue in 2013. 2014, we took a really big leap. We we brought on a large group of people and you know, we tripled the size of the business kind of overnight. 
and, and we jumped, you know, we went from 1.2 to four to 12 and then kind of on from there. And then, you know, last year we were, we were right at a hundred million for the first time. So a little over 500 employees kind of from Jacksonville, Florida now to Hobbs, New Mexico. So it's been a fun journey. Yeah. So you guys at this point are, are literally on that cusp of being considered a medium-sized business in the right. country, right? Yep. It depends on which definition you look at. Sometimes it's 100 million, sometimes it's 500, but you guys are literally right on the cusp of both of those. So, yeah. yeah. You know, let, let's, let's back up and just talk through over the last 10 years. Like, what are some of the things that you guys specifically did that have given you guys the ability to have this kind of success in 10 years time now, knowing he started before there, but really the big growth yeah. in the last 10 years. Yeah. I think a big part of our success has been the fact that we are kind of decentralized or our leadership. Kenny's in Louisiana, Kenny and Selena are in Louisiana and I'm here. So it allowed us to kind of grow the company geographically but with senior management on site the whole time, right? We didn't have to hire someone, you know, hours away and hope that they were doing a good job. We were able to stay involved in the day-to-day operations at both locations kind of at the same time. So, you know, in the 2013 and 14 days, it was helpful, right? We, you know, we, we, we tried a remote location, right? We had one in, in Memphis and then we just didn't have enough oversight at the time and it, it didn't really work out. So what was helpful for us, what worked for us anyway, was that we were decentralized. And then, you know, what's really helped us more than anything is that because we came up in the industry, you know, we, we both spent our entire careers in this industry. We have networks of people that we know and trust and who know and trust us. So when it came time to hire, we weren't really rolling the dice on a lot of people. We were bringing in people we knew and trusted. We knew how they worked. We knew they could do the work safely and effectively. So that was a huge help because we didn't have a whole lot of turnover in the early days because we knew who we were hiring. Okay. Yeah, it's fair. So how do you guys go about, I mean, obviously, you know, you, you, talked about Kenny being approached by this customer of your previous employer, basically saying, I like what you do, but I'm not hundred percent on board with, with how the company operates. And so, you know, convinced him to kind of go out on his own, get started, but that's only one customer, right? That, That doesn't lead you to building a large organization. So how do you take what knowledge you had and what contacts you had and get them to trust that, okay, Kenny does good work, but Kenny's not going to do all of the work. Yeah. How do you get them to trust you to kind of build to where you guys are today? So, you know, we like to say that outside of that one customer who's still, you know, one of our larger customers, we started as everyone else's second or third call, right? We're a, we're a service industry company, a service industry provider, and they already have people providing this service inside the facility, right? So uh, we would go in and sell that. We don't want all of your work. We want a shot at your work, right? When the company you have now, either they're stretched too thin and they can't cover a job for you, you get something after hours, they can't support it, or they stub their toe, just give us a call. We want to come in and, and show you what we can do. And that's how we did it. You know, we, we picked up, I mean, it was literally one customer at a time one phone call at a time. And then, you know, when the phone rang, 
because we had, you know, we knew who we had hired. We, we had quality people. When we did go out there, when they did let us in the gate, we, we rarely left. You know, once we got our foot in the door, we started as their second or third call, but eventually we became their first. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great way to do it. You know, just, just give us a shot when something goes wrong, your yep. main provider's too busy or whatever it is, just, you know, let us be that backup for you. And then if you provide quality work and they see that it can turn yep. into a lot. But one of our largest companies, so we do turnarounds, provide turnaround services as well. And, you know, for people who aren't in our industry, what that means is, you know, these large refineries have to perform maintenance on their equipment, right? The, the heat exchangers get fouled up, they lose efficiency, the vessels get clogged, they need to be, and then rather than, than shut the whole plant down, they shut down units at a time, you know, and they'll bring in a bunch of people that'll work around the clock on this unit for about a month or so at a time. The first opportunity we got for one of the large oil refineries they asked how many people we could provide, and we and we were honest. We just said, look, we can only provide two crews around the clock of people who know what they're doing, right? We could have scrapped something together and sent more people out there, but we really wanted to – we didn't want to oversell. We wanted to be honest about what we could provide, and we went out there with those two crews, and we did a good job, and then the next year they let us have four, and now, you know, that was 2014 was our first one. Mm-hmm. This year we're working at three of their refineries across the country, and we're the primary contractor on it. And it's just been by not overselling, not biting off more than you can chew, and then going out there and doing a good job for them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what you guys do for, for those who are in, you know, who are listening that aren't from the Gulf Coast area of the United States, you know, this is the this is a big, big business in your right. guys' area of the country. Yep. Right. So give us an idea of the the types of customers that you guys have you don't have to share names necessarily yeah. comfortable doing that but like what are what do the companies look like that you guys are offering your services to so you know a, a lot of the large oil refineries you know the the, the big five and, and those guys a lot of chemical manufacturers we work for companies that produce rubber and and plastics we, pr- we work for a lot of commercial utility companies our hydro excavation services, we work with all the utility providers around, whether it's, you know, digging, digging, pole, digging holes for them to put utility poles or, or doing line, locating lines under soil rather than using kind of yellow equipment. We'll go out there and use water and a vacuum to do it safely. We work for a lot of, I think I said chemical manufacturers, commercial, commercial construction as well. So, you know, petrochemical manufacturing, Chemical manufacturers, oil refineries, commercial utilities, those type of companies. Our, our, our customers are a lot bigger companies than we are for sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I was getting at is, you know, you guys are, you guys have successfully been able to sell over the last 10 years into very large organizations. Yep. And it was by that approach of let us be your third option, right? Let us, yeah. you know, do whatever we can to kind of help you guys out when you're in a bind. And then you've successfully translated that into being one of their main providers, if not their main provider. Absolutely. Because we don't make anything, right? We're not, we're not making a new valve that they can use or we're not, you know, doing some, you know, we're not, we're not creating something that makes their process more efficient. We're just providing the service that does it. So, and we're not the low bid either. When, you know, we're rarely the, the cheapest guy on the, on the street, we're not the most expensive, but 
you know, we, we provide a quality service that our employee, our customers like, and, you know, we tell them if, if low bid is the determining factor, we're probably not your best option. You know, if your low bid provider stubs their toe, we'll come in and do it. We, we can't match their price, but we're confident we can beat their service. So, yeah. All right. So let's talk about what inevitably comes with growing as quickly as you guys did. So yeah. in 10 years, we went from eight employees to about 500. Yeah. Right? So yeah. in that period of time, how do you make sure that your guys' level of quality and what you guys expect as the finished product, right? Yeah. The service that you're providing to maintain that same level of quality as you've grown like that. Well, I think, you know, we, we've made a couple of acquisitions along the way. And one of our acquisitions was a company in Lake Charles, Louisiana. And the, the owner of that company, we kept on board as our, he's now our VP of operations. And he's still in Lake Charles. Kenny's still in Louisiana. I'm still in Houston. So that helps again, right? Having, you know, senior level management on site, working with the guys on a daily basis certainly helps in that. And then, you know, two is because we're not the lowest, we're not low bid. We are, you know, we offer competitive salaries, which helps, you know, we are able to hire people with experience, people who've been around for a few years and have kind of demonstrated their ability to provide Safety is the most important thing, right? And if, if we can provide the, the, the service safely, that's the, the main service people are looking for, right? So if a guy has been in the business, you know, five, 10 years and has proven a, has a proven track record of working safely, that's someone we want to add to our team. And then we, you know, we have a, a onboarding and training program where before, because of the work we do is dangerous. When we bring someone in, you know, they're going to spend a week or two in a classroom. They're going to spend another week or two learning the equipment. Even if they come to us with experience, we want to make sure that they know how to do it our way. So we we spend a lot of time and invest a lot of energy in our people before we put them in front of a customer on a job site. Okay. What about on the quality control side? Do you guys have any kind of technology that you guys have deployed, different quality control checklists, different things like that, that, that guys are going through when they're out there on a job, making sure that it's adhering to the quality that you guys promise? We don't really have anything like that. What we do, you know, we have account managers. So if, if we go to work for a customer, our account manager is their primary point of contact. He's, you know, on site and, and handles every aspect of the job and every as aspect of customer relationships. So through direct communication with the customer, we get like real-time feedback on the quality of our service. And then we do some, you know, we do some things where we do outreach to customers to get feedback and surveys and those type things to, to make sure we're, we're living up to their expectations. And we're fortunate we did a, we did a kind of a more kind of all encompassing customer outreach recently got back you know 95 percent were kind of rave reviews and the five percent wasn't really the quality of work it was some back office stuff but our kind of our first line of defense or first line of kind of customer feedback is that account manager who's you know sitting in the customer's office every day figuring out what he needs and, and how we can best serve him okay all right so you're you're the ceo of the of the company which 
that role changes a bunch when you're going yeah. from eight to 500 employees, right? Yeah. So you've got to kind of work on yourself and, and learn different things along the way and manage differently and all those sorts of things. So I want to talk about that here in just a second. But before we go into what you're doing day to day and what you've done over the last 10 years to elevate your own abilities, yeah. what does Kenny do on a day to day basis for the organization? Kenny's, you know, Kenny is the one who's kind of setting the vision, right? Kenny's the president of the business. He's still involved in day-to-day operations. He and I talk regularly, you know, and, and we might not always agree on everything, but before it rolls out, we will have a, a unified voice, right? And what I like to say is Kenny's kind of the the gas that pushes us forward. And then I kind of, I'm the rudder, you know, and kind of make sure we're kind of going where he wants to go, you know, and see, and Selena, she's got the toughest job of all. She just tries to make sure the ship stays afloat, you know. She's, and she does a great job. But you know, that's that's kind of the 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 dynamic. You know, we we talk about any of the major decisions that need to happen. We we communicate with you know the, with each other, and and make sure we're kind of on the same page and aligned on where we want to go. But but Kenny is ultimately I, I'm the CEO entitled. Kenny's the founder of the business, and and in in a lot of ways, we all work for Kenny. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, 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 and it's typical that the vision comes from the founder, yeah. right? I mean, that, yeah. that's a typical thing for it. Typical way for things to happen. Yeah. And, and many entrepreneurs throughout the country are, are definitely visionary people. Yeah. I, I don't know if you've ever read the book traction by Gina Wickman. I have not. Okay. It, it's one that you should definitely read. So it's just called traction, easy to find. And, yep. and it's, it's basically the basis of this system called the Entrepreneurial Operating System or EOS, right? And it talks about how many successful businesses are built to certain levels based on there being a visionary and an integrator, right? And yep. based on what you're telling me and the way that you're explaining your guys' relationship and what I know about you personally, I think that that's probably what's going on here is you're, yeah. you're the operational guy. You're the one who makes sure that it happens a certain way. Kenny's more the idea guy for the most part and saying, here's where I want to go. Yep. Chad, how are we going to get there? Right. Yep. And then, and like I said, then as a management team, we get together. It's a pretty collaborative effort. You know, we're, we're, you know, because of, we built the company the way we did, we've all kind of worn different hats or multiple hats at the same time. And, it really was a, you know, everyone do what needs to be done to get us through this. Because of that, you know, we all trust each other. It's been it's been great. So we all trust, you know, when we get in the room together, we're all going to do, uh, you know, like I said earlier, we're not always going to agree, but we will come to a decision that we can all walk out of there knowing that this is the best, best track for the company. Yep. Yep. And that's, that's the way it should be. If you're, if you're having, respectful debate right you're you're ultimately going to come to the best decision for the organization yep okay so one more thing before we kind of jump to what you've done over the last 10 years or how you've evolved yeah. you know you mentioned selena being the cfo and, and we've talked about this a time or two on the program and, and i just want to kind of get your thoughts even though selena could definitely give more thoughts on this but I think what happens is you've got these entrepreneurs and small business owners who are listening to this program and 
And, and most people that are listening to this program are running a business that does somewhere between three and 20 million is kind of yeah. like the standard, right? Yeah. Definitely some up to 50 million, two or three up to a hundred million. So you guys are, you know, definitely the outlier, but, but what shocks most entrepreneurs that are running, call it that $5 million a year business is that hundred million dollar companies still potentially struggle with cash flow oh, yeah. and managing the cash flow. Yeah, for sure. I mean, for us, in a lot of ways, it was probably easier when we were smaller. I mean, you know, our we we pay our, our crews weekly. And, you know, I remember, you know, we had the conversation when our weekly payroll was larger than some of our monthly revenue numbers used to be, you know, and it's and especially on these large projects like these turnarounds, you know, our customers are paying us sometimes 60, sometimes 90 days later, but we have, you know, a hundred employees to pay. We have hotel rooms and per diem to pay this up. There's a cash drain up front. And, you know, we won't see the revenue, we won't see the cash for another 60 to 90 days. So how Selena juggles our, our cash flow and how she's been able to do it, you know, through the whole, you know, 10 years that, that she's been full-time CEO, I mean, CFO, is, is really impressive. I don't know that, you know, internally, she definitely gets all the credit. I don't know that all of our employees really appreciate the work that, that she's done to keep us afloat. Yeah. I mean, I, I literally met with a, a, an ownership team yesterday of a, of a smaller organization, but they'll do about 12 million this year in revenue. So a, a really successful, oh, yeah. business, you know, as by all measures in the United States. Yeah. Right. And we were talking through that and, and just the fact that they're still dealing with cash flow issues oh, and yeah. you know, employees don't fully understand that or recognize that Yes, you completed the job today. And yes, you're getting paid tomorrow because we pay every week. Right. Every other week. But we're not going to see the money on that for 30, 60, or 90 days. Right. We have to float that. We have to constantly float that. And then you go to the billing department and they think, you know, well, what, what's the big deal? We collected this much, of, you know, in, in invoices today. That's, that's right. a big deal. Yeah, but that's only 25% of our right. payroll. Yep. Right? Yeah. And so it's it, it's really tough to get that across, especially as the organization gets larger. Employees tend to think that the that the company has just gobs of cash. The owners live in, you know, their best life. They've got millions and millions oh, of yeah. A yacht and this and that, you know, <laughs> and they don't realize that the day-to-day -day cash flow is still a big, big headache. Right, and you know, a, a lot of our employees, you know, think that if if we do a million dollars in revenue, that we made a a, a million dollars, right? You know, eight hundred thousand of that was cost. You know, there's three hundred thousand of that was labor cost by itself. You know, there's, you know, it's. You know, the, 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 the money shakes out by the time, you know, we paid all our bills and, and we finally do collect is it's not the, it's not all the money that everyone thinks, you know, and, you know, and that's an education piece that, that we also, you know, our management as, as people kind of move up into management in our company, we sit them down and we, we talk them through it. A lot of, you know, a lot of people in small business, I believe, and certainly for us uh, have been promoted because they're really good at their job. Right. And, they may start out as an entry level person. They get promoted to supervisor because they're really good. 
And then, you know, they've run some crews and then they get promoted into some level of management, right? And no one's ever sat and sat them down and talked to them about a PL, right? Or or what, you know, direct costs and, and you know, what's, you know, how are your direct costs affecting profitability and what really shakes out from every dollar you make? And, you know, I think that's important too, that you're very transparent with the people who are, who are doing the day-to-day work for your company, because until they know that it's easy for them to spend money too. Right. And you, you know, obviously an important part of growing is, and, you know, cash flow is controlling what money you spend. And if you, if the people who are out there doing the work don't understand how much really comes from every dollar they make, it's easy for them to spend kind of carelessly. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember the first time I was handed a, a corporate credit card as, you know, to handle <laughs> my expense account, yeah. right. The travel that I did you know, on behalf of the company and all those sorts of things. And, and I'll never forget that the, the verbiage that I was given was if you spend this as though it's your own money, the way that you would spend your own money, then everything will probably be fine. Right. right? Because nobody spends their own money willy-nilly and doesn't think about you know how much they're spending how much it costs am i staying in two nights of a hotel did did i really need the 50 dollars steak when the 20 dollars steak was you know was right. good enough yeah those sorts of things so it, yeah it's it's a it's an an education across the board for sure yep. all right so chad let's talk about your own progression throughout yeah. the last 10 years right so i'm, I'm going to ask you to kind of self-diagnose and look deeply inside and and just talk us through, you know, maybe two or three lessons that you've learned along the way and things that you've done yourself to become the leader that you are today compared to what you were 10 years ago. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, I didn't come out of business school, right? My, my background is chemistry and biology. And like I said earlier, you know, I came up in the industry, you know, doing environmental work, and was one of those people who was promoted, like I talked about. I was field chemist, did well there, you know, was able to manage projects, got promoted, became a division manager and, and had no sense of, had no formal training or really informal training on how to manage people, how to evaluate, manage a PL. I had, you know, I was fortunate to have mentors who worked with me to teach me those things. But, you know, the most important part was realizing what I didn't know. Right. And, and being willing to ask for help, which for me really coming up was hard to, you know, coming up like the way I did, what asking for help really was saying, I don't know what I'm doing. Right. So, which is a scary situation, you know, to, to admit that I didn't know what I was doing, felt like failure, felt like I was letting the people who promoted me down. So the first main lesson I learned was how to ask for help, you know? And I think that not a lot, not enough people learn that lesson early enough, right? You know, sometimes it's, you know, it's only in, only when they're completely drowning that they'll raise their hand and ask for help when, you know, asking earlier on would have, you know, could have saved them a lot of trouble. And then, you know, I've done a lot of work, you know, just on myself, you know, a lot of personal growth work, from, from shadow work, working with coaches, working with mentors to really understand. And then I, I read a lot too, to really understand kind of where my thoughts and beliefs come from, you know, 
how they got there. You know, if I'm stressed and I respond a certain way, why am I responding that way? So there's, you know, there's a, there's a lot of introspection and personal growth work that I do personally, that I think helps me, you know, a line that's been sticking with me lately is there's a, it's in a book I read years ago, but I came across the quote recently. It said, there's no Zen at the mountaintop, right? You're, the only Zen you find at the top of the mountain is the Zen you bring with you. And I really believe that, you know, if you don't do the work on yourself to really understand yourself before you get successful or, you know, to the top of any mountain or to where you want to be, the challenges that are waiting for you when you get there are going to be harder to handle, right? They're, they're just, they're, they're a lot easier to deal with if you've done the work and laid the foundation, you know, on the way up. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, no, I think there's some, some great wisdom in, in what you just said. I mean, being introspective and, and working on yourself as a person, regardless of what your role is in any organization, is something yeah. that anybody should do. Yep. You know? I'm a big believer in constantly gaining knowledge in any way that you can get it, right? Yeah. And once once we're out of school, there's typically not a formal way of getting that, right? So whether it's out of high school or out of college or business school or whatever the case may be, it's up to you to gain that knowledge yourself. And so depending on who you are as, a, as an individual and how you learn or how you're able to spend your time it may be an audio book or it may be reading the physical book there's nothing wrong with either one right you spend a lot of time in the truck i know that and so i'm guessing you do a fair amount on audio books audio books and then that you know that blinkist app i don't know if you've used blinkist but it kind of distills down you know these great books into 15 minute versions and you know those are those are great options too and you know, I still like to to spend some time every morning just reading a physical book. Like the, the I I still enjoy flipping the pages and you know the feel of a book in my hands. I, I spend a lot of time reading as well. Yeah, li- lifelong learning is a is a skill that I think everybody should have. And Absolutely. So, yeah, I would encourage anybody listening to do whatever you can to to constantly be learning. Yeah, I have a. a you know, I mentioned earlier, my, my daughter's about to be 12 and she's a, she's in swim and, and she does play some volleyball and stuff. So I was talking to someone about coaching recently and I, I just used her as an example. I said, you know, I sent her to coaches so she can get better at swim and volleyball and all those things. Right. Until I think I have it all figured out, it would make, it makes all the sense in the world to want to work with a coach, right? I'm not the best CEO I can be today, right? I know I can be better in a lot of ways. So I want to learn. I want to work with a coach and, men- and mentors who can help me get that, get there. So that's just, you know, I, I try to instill that. And if you have an opportunity, especially if your company is going to pay for it, to work with a coach, you know, it, you know, it's, it's worth asking your supervisor, your boss or whatever, hey, is this something you'd be willing to do? Because I think I can get better at this aspect of my job. If, a, if an employee comes to me and says they want to get better, I'm going to invest in that employee. Yeah. So are, are you currently working with a CEO coach or have in the past? I have in the past, uh, you know, kind of in between, in between coaches right now, you know, but I've worked with several, you know, during COVID, I was, you know, kind of in a rut and, and reached out and found a purpose coach who helped me. So a lot of times, you know, there are, there are kind of an incident or I find myself stuck. 
and then I'll reach out to the network of people that I, I know and, and work with a coach. And it's usually like a, you know, four to six month engagement that I'll work with them and kind of either now it's, I'm at a point where I kind of work through an issue, you know, and then, but yeah, absolutely. I, 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 I expect that I will always, you know, work with mentors and coaches to try to get better. Yeah. I think it's important. You know, it, everybody talks about, you know, fortune 500 CEOs or, you know, whatever the case may be. And, you know, they don't have coaches. Well, yeah, actually most of them do, do. you know, whether you like him or hate him, everybody knows the name Tom Brady, right. And Tom Brady, his entire life, has had a coach. Yep. Multiple coaches mm-hmm. for different areas of what it what it is that he does. So it, it could easily be argued, whether you like it or not, that he's the greatest of all time in terms of, of NFL quarterbacks, right? But what I find interesting about him specifically is the last couple of years, I guess it is at Tampa Bay, his quarterback's coach slash offensive coordinator was Byron Leftwich, mm-hmm. right? Byron Leftwich didn't have the same physical talents that Tom Brady had, but he knows and sees things differently than Tom does. And yep. that's a benefit to Tom. Yep. Right. And like uh, Brett Favre and Donovan McNabb, who have mm-hmm. both talked about what Ty Detmer meant to them in their careers. Ty Detmer was a Heisman Trophy winner, but didn't have the physical traits to be one of the best NFL quarterbacks. He was shorter and wasn't yep. super mobile but he knows the game extremely well and made Donovan McNabb and Brett Favre better at their game. Yep. Why would it be any different for us as people who are running businesses to, to reach out to a coach the same way that professional athletes that are making millions of dollars a year because they're the most talented at what they do, they still have coaches. Absolutely. Absolutely. I I think it's, I, I think that having a coach is, one of the best things someone can do, especially as you're, you know, you're growing your business because challenges present themselves every day. And it's most of them are challenges you haven't confronted yet. Right. So why not work with someone who has, who sees it a different way or can, can pick out your blind spots. Right. Cause we all have. Them. So yeah, I, I'm, I'm a big advocate of professional coaching and then, you know, on a less formal basis, mentorship. I think that, you know, one of, one of my favorite things to do is, is mentor people. And I've still have a network of mentors that I rely on for, for any, you know, any kind of situation that comes up. All right. So let's switch gears a little bit. Let's talk about what the future holds for Vecta, right? Yeah. Like where do we go from here? How long do you think Kenny wants to do this? How long do you want to do this? What do you yeah. guys envision? being, you know, the transitionary period, for example, with Vecta. And then after that, I want to talk about your background on the nonprofit spot side yep. and what you personally are, are passionate about. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, Kenny and I are, you know, still actively involved and, and want to push it. Our agenda, our kind of goal is to double in four years. So in four years, we want to be 200 million. We think it's doable. That's going to involve us, you know, this year alone, we've opened two new offices, two new locations. We have our site set on a third, which will either be kind of Q4 or maybe early next year. And then, you know, it's going to take some more acquisitions to get where we want to go. The, 
you know, the, the Gulf Coast is really the sweet spot for the services we provide. And there's work throughout the country. You know, one of our offices that we just opened is in Decatur, Alabama. There's a, there's a, a, a lot of industry in that area. There's a lot of industry on the East Coast that we're not touching because of our footprint. So we understand that to get to where we want to go, our footprint has to grow. So that's, you know, that's certainly in our plans as well. So, you know, our, our, our four-year plan is to double in size and then kind of see where we go. But, you know, we're, I'm 52. Kenny's a little younger than me. Selena's a little younger than him. So, you know, and then David Owen, who's our VP is, is, you know, kind of right in there too. So we're all, you know, we're all in it for, you know, the next five years as a minimum and then kind of see where it goes after that. So, I don't know if you've read Seven Habits of Highly Effective People yeah. by Stephen. Right? Yeah. Most people have. You know, one of the things that he, one of the lines in there that he's famous for is begin with the end in mind. Right. right? Kenny definitely did not begin with the end in mind. <laughs> I, I don't, I've never met him, but right. the way he started, that wasn't the case. Very few business owners, is that the case? Right. But at this point, now it's okay. There's got to be an end in mind. At, at what point? It's still flexible, right? But yeah. at what point do I want to exit this business, and how? Yeah. Have you guys had that conversation at all? Yeah, yeah, we have. And you know, I think I don't want to put words in Kenny's mouth. I think you know, at our next, so we partnered with Private Equity in 2018. We we've kind of. And then we kind of outgrew them and then partnered with our current partner just at the very end of the year last year, like right at New Year's Eve, kind of. So I think at the next transition, Kenny may consider it. It depends on where the company is, what the next partner wants and expects. But I think at that point, he may look at at least coming up with a transition plan. You know, whether I'm sure that they're going to want them to hang around for a few years. So maybe it's three years or two or three years afterwards. I would suspect, you know, based on some of our conversations, that's probably his timeline. Mine would probably be a little bit longer just based on the role. You know, I think, you know, I, I don't mind hanging around and, and going for a little longer run. And it's, you know, a lot of it really depends on if, if they still want to keep us around, you know, it depends on who that next partner is, if it's a strategic they they may think that they have a management team in place that can do it better than us, and our our plans will be out the window anyway, you know. But you know, if we had it ideally, I think that's probably his timeline. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, it really depends on your industry and the size and all those kinds of things. But private equity can be a great way to go. I mean, Kenny, I'm sure can speak to the fact that you know. He took some chips off the table with the first one and then probably took some more chips off the table at the end of last year. And then, you know, maybe he takes the rest of the chips off right. the table the next go round, like you mentioned. So that can be beneficial to him. It can be beneficial to you, obviously, as a management team and the organization as, as a whole. So that's yeah. that sounds like you guys are on an exciting track. It, it is. And one thing we've been able to do through the process is give give meaningful ownership to, to, to some of our key employees who've been with us along the ride. So for them, you know, each time we cycle in, they they see a little windfall too, and we're able to give more. So it's been it's been a good run for for you know a lot of us. So yeah, sure. All right, so let's talk about 
what you're passionate about on the yeah. on the nonprofit side, right? Yep. So I was yep. I keyed in on your on your bio here where it says you're active in your community, working with anti-racism organizations in yeah. Houston and New Orleans, and then a member of the Mankind Project, a global brotherhood of nonprofit charitable organizations dedicated to personal development, multicultural awareness, and community service. And if that wasn't enough. <laughs> You recently co-founded the Second Story Project, a nonprofit organization dedicated to creating more inclusive organizations and empowering individuals to excel to their highest potential. So yeah. they're all tied together. Yeah. Right? Yeah, it's all are. about inclusivity. It's about fighting racism, all those sorts of things. So yeah. let me just put you on your own soapbox, so to speak, and, and yeah. tell me why that's so important to you and what you guys are literally doing day to day with yeah. So, I mean, growing up in Norfolk, it, we had a, a really diverse neighborhood. It's, you know, it's Navy families. So, you know, it, it, we had friends and our house was kind of the gathering place. Right. So we would have friends, you know, of, of different races, different cultures, all kind of meeting at our house. And we were a really tight knit little group of people. And I saw firsthand I had a, a neighbor who was but I mean, he was just a neo-Nazi, you know, he, he house caught on fire. He jumped out the window holding Mein Kampf. You know, he wouldn't let go of that on his way out the window. <laughs> and so I saw firsthand how racism just affects people, right? I saw my friends be, you know, bear the brunt of it. So it's always something that stuck with me. And then when I got involved with the Mankind Project, which I, I went to really for personal growth, right? It's a, and got really involved in, through the Mankind Project with an organization in Houston called the Center for the Healing of Racism. Became an active member there and started developing and facilitating workshops to really teach anti-racism and, and anti-racism awareness to groups in the community, like church groups, going to schools, teaching it to, to kids in school, teaching it to adults on really how to have honest, open conversations about race and racism with people that don't agree with you, right? Who don't look like me, don't think like me, don't come from the same background as me, but we can have, we don't have to agree, but we can have these open, honest conversations and come to a place of common understanding and appreciation. So just through my exposure to that organization, and there's another organization in New Orleans that I've done some work with, the People's Institute for Survival and Beyond, which is really about, you know, it's another anti-racism organization. It's just something that's always been kind of a part of me and who I am. It's kind of the, the values that I kind of picked up growing up where I grew up. And then the reality is, you know, our employee base and the, you know, the, the people who do the work that that we do in large part are, are people of color, right? It's a, it's a very diverse workforce. And, you know, the, the appreciation that I have for all the people that do this work, you know, it, what we're proud of at VECT is that our leadership team looks like our employee base. You know, we don't, and not all of our competition has that. You know, the reality is, I tell the story a lot. I was on a trade shore, you know, I was walking across a trade shore floor, floor one day, trade show floor. And, you know, it was kind of before the show opened and I was looking around and it was all, you know, middle-aged white guys or younger white women, right? And, and I know that the people who do the work don't look like us, you know, for the most part. So the thought, you know, really came to me, like, where, where is the ceiling that prevents those people from coming in? And what doors 
are closed to them? Why aren't they here representing the companies, right? So that's really when my nonprofit kind of passion work overlapped with my day-to-day paycheck work, right? And what can I do then to raise that ceiling and open those doors so that the people who work for us actually represent us or the face of the company as well. So, you know, that's just kind of, again, you know, it's, it's my, it's just a part of who I am and a part of the values that I've always had. My, my, my mom, you know, grew up in Wisconsin and her best friend was a, a native American girl. And my mom would catch shrapnel just from being friends with this young girl, you know, and, so she always instilled in us, you know, the, the values of, you know, appreciating and respecting everyone's humanity and seeing the beauty in everybody. Yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's really cool. I think, you know, hopefully you guys are doing stuff internally in the organization so that the members of your organization realize how committed you are to that. And it's not just something that you're paying lip service to. Yeah. Right. Cause I, I think, you know, unfortunately, the way that this whole diversity, equity, and inclusion stuff has rolled out nationwide, a lot of companies are just kind of doing exactly that. Oh, yeah. They're paying service to it. They're, they're checking the box, right? Like we hired this percentage of this group and, you know, and that's the way that they're approaching it. Whereas for you, hopefully your employees realize like this is, this is who you are at your core. Right. right? And, and it's not just, that you're checking the box because you basically have to now from a federal standpoint, this is something you guys have done for a while and that you truly believe in and live day in and day out. Yeah. And you know, the the second story project, the nonprofit that I co-founded, you know, that's what, what we tell organizations that we work with is this is not a check the box training, right? You, you can't go online and do watch a couple of videos and, go through a test and say you did your training so you can check it off. I mean, ours is an experiential, you know, experiential workshop where we, it's really based on people telling their own stories, right? The reason we call it the second story project is a lot of times, you know, I'll get so caught up in my story and my beliefs that I kind of hunker down and throw insults and, you know, accusations at the other people who are bunkered, you know, hunkered down in their bunker. They're doing the same we don't take time to listen to each other, right? So what we do is we create a situation where uh, we create an environment where we're going to listen to each other. And, you know, so I have my story and you have yours, but together we can co-create a second story together that works for everybody. And that's kind of what we try to do. Yeah. Yeah. You know, this is something that I've kind of worked on with myself over the last several years where I didn't even have a realization, to be honest with you, of some of the biases that I grew up with and, and held, you know, personally without, without knowing it, right? right. I mean, I, I've had friends of multiple races, backgrounds, cultures, religions, and, and I've never felt like I judged anybody or looked at them differently. But as I've looked internally and realized there are some things that I think that I thought were different about them or I treat them differently or react differently to them than, than I should. And so, you know, I, I, I just, I point that out to, to point out that most of us have those blind spots and those biases that we grew up with that we don't even realize we had. Right. Right. 
Right. Absolutely. Yeah, it's culture versus, or not culture, but the nature versus nurture, right? right? The way that we grew up or where we grew up Absolutely. can have a huge impact on the way that we see the world. Right. And, you know, I I don't, look, there is overt racism, right? There's no doubt that there that is an aspect of not only our society, you know, society in general, right? And I think for me, the learning was that that's not all that racism is, Right. Not all racism is a hood and burning crosses and all that. There are little aspects of my life that are unconscious to me most of the time. Even someone who does the work all the time, I still, you know, whether it comes to me and I, I realize it myself or, you know, someone tells me about it. What's important for me is when someone does tell me about it to not get defensive, to, to really hear what they have to say, because whatever I did, whatever I said, spark something in them, right? So I need to hear that. So, you know, just being open to to the fact that and it's not my fault. It's not my parents' fault that I'm this way. It's not anyone's fault. So the the lady who runs the Center for the Healing of Racism, Cherry Steinwender is a dear friend, lover to death. She always says, you know, racism is America's disease. It's not your fault. You're sick, but it's your responsibility to get better, right? So that's kind of how I view it. You know, it's, it's just, I want to do what I can to make myself better, teach the people in my little circle what, what, I, what I know in the hopes that they can kind of create larger bubbles and the circle gets bigger that way. Yeah, because to your point, the overt racism does exist, right? But the biggest percentage of racism that we see in our country is this is the non-overt right. race? Yep. Right. Very few people would consider themselves racist or overtly act right. in a way or do something that is racist. Right. It's the the stuff that's unconscious to us that we don't realize that we're doing or saying that is portraying that racism. Absolutely, and and to be and you know kind of back to the coaching thing through my work with these organizations, I've learned so much about it, right? Had I, it, it wasn't until I got involved in these organizations that I, you know, I really learned how much of that was still in me, in spite of the fact that I know, you know, look, that's not my intention. I, you know, I'm, I have these values that I believe in, and there were still parts of me that, you know, there are still racist beliefs that come to me occasionally that I have to work through. Yep. It's that lifelong learning thing and that, that lifelong self-introspection, right? We all have to work yep. on it all the time. Yep. Well, Chad, I really appreciated the conversation. I, I appreciate you as a person and what you believe in and what you're doing in your community and, uh, and as a business leader and what you guys are doing at Vecta and, and, and building there. It's, it's, it's fun to watch and, and I look forward to watching you guys grow from 100 to 200 and beyond. Yeah, Austin, I appreciate it, man. It's been a joy talking with you. And, and and thank you for all the work you're doing to kind of, like you said, it's the backbone of the company, the other country, the small businesses. So your support in that community is, is awesome and appreciated. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for being willing to come on and tell your story. Yes, sir. Thank you.
You've been listening to Tycoons of Small Biz, a podcast for small business owners by small business owners. Join us next week for an introduction to another great tycoon and be sure to follow us on our social media channels for links to all of our episodes and great content.